I love having a chat with Dr. Robin Cook, astrophysicist, and he joins us again this afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Robin. Hello, Jenny. Lovely to be here. It's a pity you're not in the studio. I like looking at your lovely face. I know, I know. It is a shame. <laughs> That's okay. It's a, there's so many interesting things to speak to you about today. But um, in, in, in an order, we'll look at the dismantling of the International Space Station for last. But you've got an interest, and I read the other day about an incredible lady called Cecilia Payne. Yes, yes, oh, absolutely astonishing astrophysicist. Her work was, was absolutely foundational to astrophysics. In what way? Yeah. Tell us more about her. Well, so she was, she was an English astrophysicist, and she's really known for her work uh, on the chemical composition of stars, like her own sun. But, you know, she grew up in a time when it was, was really difficult and, dare I say, near impossible for women to pursue a career in academia, yeah. right? At the time, uh, women weren't seen as, as able to be great astrophysicists or good astrophysicists. So, you know, she did a, a master's degree in, in England and, and was never actually given her degree for the work she did because they didn't give out degrees there at, um, at Cambridge University. So she, she decided, well, okay, screw this. I'm going to go over to, uh, to America. <laughs> is that exactly what she said? <laughs> I'm sure there's something of the like, and maybe the, the translation is not quite right. But she, she left England in about 1923, and, and she, she decided to start a PhD at, at Harvard College Observatory. And this is one of the only universities in the world that were actually offering graduate positions to women at the time, so really one of her only options. Um, yeah, and, and I guess she realised that, that for her, she wasn't satisfied with the idea that her only pathway in academia would have been just school teaching essentially where she was in England. Yeah, what an amazing mind, eh? She apparently Indeed. discovered what the universe you'd know this, what the universe is made of, what the sun is made of. Yeah, exactly right. So she used something called spectroscopy. This is a really powerful technique where you, you take the light from an object, say that might be the star or a torch or something, and you, you split it up into its rainbow of colours. I think about, you know, Pink Floyd's album cover where there's that light passing <laughs> through a, a prism and, and splitting into the different frequencies of light or the different wavelengths of light. And so what she found is that stars, like our own sun, typically have these dark gaps throughout their, their spectrum. And, and that's light that's being absorbed at, at specific wavelengths to to corresponding to, to, to chemical elements. Oh. And, and, and what's really powerful about this is, you know, if you know what those wavelengths are, you can start to say exactly what's in the sun, what, what, what the sun is made out of. Amazing. Which is kind of incredible. I mean, back when she was working at it, as she, as she was, and so very successful, she wouldn't have had the, the, I suppose, the technology or anything like we have today to help her to come up with these assumptions. No. No, absolutely not. You know, this is this is the the 1920s sort of uh, yeah. pre-computer. So what that meant is this work was in in fact particularly difficult to do, and actually probably why no one else was willing to do it. Uh, it required immense amount of concentration and persistence to look at these spectra, these vast amounts of data, and look for these gaps, these 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 black patches where there was yeah. no light, right? And then to be able to correspond what those elements were were actually made of uh, oh, was really yeah. the trickle part, yeah. No space travel to help her along the way. And, uh, and I mean, the telescopes wouldn't have been as accurate, I, get, I imagine, back then Certainly as they are not. today. No, incredible. So and, her work, and, sorry to interrupt, her work perhaps yeah, has been, you reflect on it, for the want of a better term, um, reflect on it uh, to help you along these days. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. um, I think her work really uh, is... is ultimately foundational to, to our modern understanding of astrophysics. But I think more so than that, her impact on astronomy is, is her greatest legacy. You know, mm -hmm. she, she was the first uh, full professor at Harvard, and that only 
came about in, in 1956, and she was the first woman to do so, of course, but mm. she really broke that glass ceiling for, for women in, in, in all fields of astronomy. And I think about some of the great astrophysicists around me today and, and how they may not have been given the chance to, to, to you know, pursue their careers as they are able to now. And so that's her mm. legacy, really, at the end of the day. How wonderful is that? Is. And I guess there's a lot more women today involved in physio, oh, astrophysicists. Absolutely. Yeah, in the work of that. That is amazing. It's so interesting. Now, Robin, the the Binar Space Program, um, this is happening. Tell us a wee bit more about that. Yeah, the Binar Space Program. So, so this is this is a group run out of the Space Science and Technology Centre at Curtin University. So here on our own uh, home soil, right? Uh, they're they're sort of, sort of a small team of space science engineers, software engineers, uh, space policy advisors. You know, quite a relatively small group. But the work that they're doing is actually kind of incredible. So, just in uh, August last year, they launched. WA's first ever homegrown spacecraft. It is now orbiting about 400 k's above the Earth as we speak, which is incredibly <laughs> exciting. Where was it launched? Uh, it was actually launched from from America. So, so oh, right. it wasn't launched from uh, our Australia backyard, itself. no, <laughs> not from our backyard, but it was built here, and that, that's the real key part. That we are, you know, finally becoming Western Australia is becoming this hub for for space exploration and for astrophysics and astronomy. It's really becoming this exciting place for for young people to sort of pursue a career in in, in space, essentially. So how long is it going to stay up there for? Well, hopefully as long as it keeps uh, collecting light from the sun and running its motors and and, and orbiting for as long as possible. But the plan is to actually, from Binar's point of view, to send up six more spacecraft in the next sort of 18 to to months to, to, to 24 months. And Together they'll form this sort of constellation of of, uh, of, of cubesats, yeah. And the information being sent back to us would be what exactly? Well, it's it's kind of interesting. It's it's got so many different use cases here. I guess some of the things you can think about is is really monitoring changes on Earth. So things like bushfire detection and monitoring you know algae blooming in river systems, drought levels, when's the optimal time to harvest crops, those kind of things. But I think my what I think is the most exciting thing about this is because this is using this CubeSat technology, this is a relatively cheap way of, of putting things into space. It actually opens up windows for educational aspects of, of, of spacecraft. So what BINAR is planning to do is this BINAR X program where they've just received about $2.5 million of state government funding mm-hmm. to put up projects from school kids, so, so school kids will imagine these ideas, and projects, science projects that you can do in space. They'll be designed and implemented and put up in space so that they can conduct research <laughs> in the space. How incredible is that? Oh, it's just some, it's too mind blowing for people my age. Let me tell you, <laughs> we, we, yeah. we used to be. Ago, this would have been billions of dollars. People have spent their entire careers yeah. trying to to oh, put gosh. things in space, and now school kids can do it. Isn't that incredible? It is incredible. But you know, you you of course are amongst it all the time, and but it's such a shock and a delight to hear that this is the progress of us all and you know you're right looking from space to look at bushfires for more of an alert and and environmental situations is going to be just unbelievable so that is just absolutely marvelous and i was going to ask you about the cost of something like this but the government can see the future in this and have started to um have it within their budget is that right that's right yeah, yeah. i mean you, you used to think like you know decades ago this would have been hundreds of millions of dollars billions of dollars even, right? But now this is, we're looking at like less than a million dollars for these kind of things Gosh. to be launched. 
Um, and so, you know, not unseasonable amounts of money for governments, small governments, to sort of back and get behind and, yeah. and really invest in and, and, and see some really great outcomes from, from, you know, a relatively small amount of money. Are there other governments looking at doing this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think what's exciting is that Australia is taking this opportunity to, to get on board quickly, right? Um, this is really the window that we need to look at. We don't want to go big like the International Space Centre. We don't need to uh, build something ginormous like that. But these cube satellites, which are only about 10 centimetres in size, this is our window of opportunity. We have such clever people in WA. We really do. We absolutely do. <laughs> You're included, Robin. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, the interesting thing about dismantling, uh, dismantling the International Space Station. This is looking to be completed by 2030, is that right? Well, yes, so the International Space Station, as lovely as it is and how, how much we, we appreciate its work, eventually is going to have to be taken down, right? There's already some cracks and, and uh, fissures starting to show, and at some point it's going to get too expensive to maintain. So they've decided, NASA's decided, and actually all the international groups involved have decided to, to take it down in, in 2031. Um, oh, which is okay. an interesting idea, yeah. To, to finally let this legacy fall to the earth is um, is kind of a sad thing in some ways. Well, well, it is. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, like you've mentioned in your note here, and I was recalling that with Peter Waltham earlier, of course, we remember the NASA Skylab spacecraft crashing uh, down oh, to yeah. Western Australia and it, was, it created a lot of interest. Are we looking at pulling it? How, is, are there people going to go up and start to pull it, dismantle it and let it go into space? How does it, how's it going to work? Well, they probably won't have people on board when it happens. They'll probably take all the astronauts down, but they'll have other spacecraft kind of go up and dismantle it in pieces. And indeed, yes, they'll send it down to Earth. Hopefully it doesn't fly into Esperance again, um, <laughs> as the Skylab did back in uh, 1979, which is good because, you know, Esperance, the city of Esperance actually sent NASA a, a littering fine of 400 Oh, did they? Yeah, you know, they certainly did. Of course, you can't be littering around Esperance. Well, I don't think it ever got paid, frankly, but... I think not. ...any more of those. I, th- I think that the concern would be for our, for us lay people here if you've got space junk at that you know that magnitude falling to earth does mm. it disintegrate uh, to a certain extent before it lands here on earth or are we looking at some fairly heavy materials heading pretty quickly toward us Right, yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. You know, these CubeSats that I talked about with the BNR space program, they would be fine, right? These are small, they would be burnt up in the Earth's atmosphere. But these larger things like the International Space Station, of course, yes, bits of it will, in fact, certainly large pieces, but will fall down to the Earth. And so, mm. you know, there has to be a plan for this. And, in fact, most spacecraft going up into space has to have a plan for where this debris is going to go. In fact, there is a solution, and in very human, on-brand tradition, our plan is to send this stuff into the ocean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, how do they guide that down? Well, the, so there is definitely ways, I and mean, we're very good at putting things up in space, so we're very proud okay. of that. We I'm, glad we've, I'm glad we've worked that one out before we send it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, is a, there is a very specific place where, where the space junk goes. Oh. It's called Point Nemo, Latin for no one or nobody. And essentially it's the most remote location, uh, the farthest point from any land on the planet. Uh, somewhere in the South Pacific Ocean, somewhere. So, is there anything there already? They believe, they believe not really, oh. much at all, but at the same time, not. They don't actually think anyone has ever been there. It's so remote; it's almost you know 
impossible yeah. to get to. It's away from any kind of trade routes or anything like that. Mm. Uh, and they don't believe there's much biological life there being so far from any sort of land masses. But who knows what's oh. lurking at the bottom of these. <laughs> you, can, you can see what's going to happen. The travel industry are going to catch, in, catch on to this and they're going to start <laughs> yeah, sending absolutely. cruise ships out and you're going to go yeah. down in submarines and check on the junk down on the bottom of the ocean. And <laughs> it'll be another... Graveyard <laughs> tourism. <laughs> grave, that's exactly right. That's amazing. Oh, my goodness. Just before I let you go, too, tell mm-hmm. us the sort of work that the space station has carried out. What, what is the history of this? How long has it been up there? Well, it's been up since sort of early 2000, so certainly a long time to be up there. It'll have a 30-year sort of uh, lifetime in total. It's done uh, numerous things, and, and it's really... It's crux is that the fact that you can simulate zero gravity, so the fact that things are just sort of hovering in free space, not affected by uh, the the pull down of gravity. Um, And so, you know, how would uh, humans be able to survive in such extreme conditions? How would certain plant matter be able to grow? All these kind of things that sort of lead towards our exploration further out into 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 space you know things like mars how are we going to make that travel etc that's really what the international space station was was designed for and and and, okay from from being out there what actually constructively have we learned from this i can tell you one really amazing thing so uh, there was a mission done by NASA where they sent one of two twins onto the space uh, space station, Kelly, and uh, they just, they kind of monitored the differences between one twin that had been out in space and the one that stayed on Earth. Yeah. What they found is the one that was in space has actually grown taller. Oh. Of course, there's less uh, gravity pulling down on them. They were actually able to stretch, but they're actually their their genetics had changed. Uh, up in space and things like their eyesight had degraded much poorer than, than, than it was when they were on Earth. These kinds of differences. So things we hadn't oh. actually discovered, so the effects of space on the human body. So if we're going to have more space travel by human beings, we're going to have to make sure that we've got the medical solutions to a lot of these exactly. areas. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, one fascinating thing is that all, a, a majority of men who have been out into space as astronauts have, have come back with some... Uh, minor to serious eye conditions after the fact. But to date, not a single woman astronaut has had eye problems associated with them. So here you go. Here's an example where, of course, women in astronomy and astrophysics and and space exploration, of course, there's an advantage. (laughs) The whole point of space exploration seems to me going in the direction of human beings living out in space in the future, not so much as governing or, sorry, overseeing what's happening around the world, but you are doing a bit of both, aren't you? Of course. Yeah, okay. You can't have one without the other. Yeah. I mean, with what's happening around the world at the moment, and we have these awful catastrophes happening, mm. um, it, it, from watching it from up there, the people that are up there looking down at it, it must be a frightening thing to see. Yes and no. I think there's this uh, effect that some astronauts feel. It's sort of this space perspective where, they, you know, when you see the Earth in its totality and its sort of grandness and you're so far away removed from it, it sort of changes your perspective on, on, on the world. And I think it probably puts them in a sort of more uh, Unrealistic, yeah. open-minded uh, way of thinking. They probably overcome these sort of thoughts here that bother them here on Earth. Now, Robin, do you have any aspirations of getting up there? You know, I, you might have heard of the Mars One project that once occurred, uh, and so they were taking 
uh, nominations for people to go to Mars. But of course, the one in Mars one was a one-way trip. So <laughs> I certainly put my name down for that. Did you? Um, I did. Of course, I did. I, uh, but but I never got in, and it's probably thankfully because uh, my I don't think my partner would be very happy. If I left her <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. You know, there are yeah. okay. reasons. I'm very content staying here with her now. Well, I think it's wonderful that you do because the information that you share with us is absolutely amazing. I mean, we are mere mortals, honestly, and to hear what's going on behind closed doors and it must be so fascinating. You know, you're like you're like explorers, really, aren't aren't you, all of you? Exactly, you the are. new age explorers. New age explorers. It's taken a long time. Who's to know what's going to happen in the next fifty years or so, though, Robin? Goodness. Exactly. If we're reeling on yeah. what happened in the last decade, what what's coming in the next? You know. Yeah. Keep us informed, won't you? I always do. Good on you, Robin. Thank you so much. Love speaking to you. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. That's uh, Dr. Robin Cook, astrophysicist.